Good morning, Freedom House. Y'all look amazing today. I am so excited to be with you. I just want to say a special welcome to all of our live streamers, our online campus. Can we give it up for our online campus joining us? We are truly worldwide pitbull style today. We have got the UK, Germany, Ireland. Hi, good on you there. We've got Georgia, North Carolina, Florida, Ohio, Maryland, New Hampshire, Massachusetts, New York, Pennsylvania, Virginia, South Carolina, New Jersey, Indiana, West Virginia, and Michigan. Yeah. Woo! Well, now that I know you guys are out there, I'm gonna preach two, three hours today just to make sure you really get your money's worth. No, thank you so much for joining us online. If you are ever in Charlotte, join us right here at Central Campus. We would love to meet you. So if we have not had the pleasure of meeting, my name is Sam Taylor. I am normally domiciled at the Lake Norman campus, but I have been untethered today and released on the Central Campus. As you can tell, I'm a man of very low energy, so this might be a very boring affair, but stay with me. No. My wife Jenny and I, we are part of our kids' ministry. We're part of Freedom Academy, but I also have the privilege, yes. I also have the privilege of being part of our teaching team. Now, if you are new to the church, we are one house with many rooms, but we are not a video venue. That means every Sunday, every service, every campus, you're gonna have a live communicator that shares with you a word they have received from God. Now, that is the result of the vision and leadership of our senior pastors. So before we begin, can we please give some honor to Pastors Troy and Penny Maxwell. So today we are wrapping a series called Back to Basics. I have absolutely loved it. Who has learned something in this series? So much practical and biblical wisdom. It is almost as if... The Bible is an instruction manual for how we are to live every facet of our lives. And so it is with that knowledge today that I want to wrap the series with a call to action. Whether you are a parent, you are a spouse, you are a believer, whatever. You have been poured into all month with the word of God. How to break generational curses. How to model the behavior your children need to see. How to communicate with your spouse. So today is about how you take everything you have learned and you defend the infallibility of the truth that is the Word of God. And you do it no matter what circumstance, no matter what comes at you, you defend it whenever Scripture is questioned. And make no mistake, Scripture will be questioned. And let's state the obvious. There are tons of voices in the world that are vying for real estate in your head. Most of them do not have any desire to align with Scripture, but they have a strong desire to influence you, influence your children, influence your business. And while the method of transmission, the frequency may be different, they are relentlessly saying the same thing. They want to indoctrinate you and your family into a belief that the Bible is not the single source of truth for your lives. Now, I want you to just think, even on the way into church this morning, how many times did you find yourself distracted by social media, by a poor driver, whatever? Listen, I'm almost 46. I grew up in an age when phones still had cords. Pong was the only video game. 
The only way to send mail was with a postage stamp on it, and I was the remote control for a TV that had three channels. Right? Channel 6, Channel 8, Channel 10. When we got Fox, I about lost my mind. That was unbelievable, and that was a lot of turns on the dial, for the record. But the world has changed, and with it, so have the attacks of the devil. But let me tell you what has not changed. The infallible Word of God. The truth that Scripture is inerrant and 100% accurate. And as believers, that's great news. Because it means we know where to go to find the truth that will protect our families. But knowing where to find the truth means nothing if you don't actually search for the truth, learn the truth, and then teach it to your children. Parents, spiritual or biological, this one is for you. If you think that you can bring your kids to church, drop them in FH Kids, bring them to Vertical, but never mirror, mimic, or teach anything that they learn on Sundays and still think they will be able to stand firm in the faith, you are very likely mistaken. FH Kids, amazing. You guys saw it, right? Some of those folks are gunning for my job, those kids right there. Pastor Michael Ott back there, there is no better youth pastor in the world, right? What the Molkais are doing with Vertical, that is transformational. It is impacting generations. It's incredible, but it is meant to be supplemental reinforcement. Parents are to train up their children in the way they should go so that when they are old, they will not depart from it. And if what we are teaching here, 75 minutes a week, doesn't match the way you behave and what you teach the other 166 and a half hours of the week, odds are good they are not going to have God's truth settled in their heart. And it's got to be settled in their heart because there's going to come a point when the transfer of belief is complete. And they're going to have to stand on their own two feet, whether they're at a liberal university, whether they're in the workplace, whether they're on a sports team. That's why it's so important we learn and teach the word. And I know it can be difficult. You say, Pastor Sam, I mean, some of that stuff. Have you read Obadiah? I get it. It can be difficult, but that is not an excuse. We have got to arm our children so that they can not only stand firm in the faith, but they can also be a witness and answer the call of Matthew 28, 20 to answer and respond to the Great Commission. So today is about arming you with the tools and the truths that you need to teach children that the Bible is real, to give you ways to respond when the veracity of the Bible is questioned. And it doesn't matter whether they are spouting nonsense or whether they are bringing up what they feel is a reasoned argument. We have always got to be willing and able to respond. So let's start with a verse from Proverbs. Now, Proverbs was penned by Solomon. And in case you don't know, Second only to Pastor Aaron Blanton. I, I was hoping they wouldn't laugh for the record. Solomon is the wisest man to have ever lived. Let the wise hear and increase in learning, and the one who understands obtain guidance. To understand a proverb and a saying, the words of the wise and their riddles. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. 
Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Now that statement is simple in its verbiage, but it is profound in its exegesis. Fear of the Lord, meaning reverent awe of the Lord. That is the foundation upon which you must build your house. Wow, what do you think of the truth, your future, your family, faith, all of it? It is saying that until you honor God, you say he deserves reverent all, you can never truly know anything. Now, the world is going to say something completely different. And I want to hit that head on because you are going to face challengers from all sides, right? You're going to get those folks that are just spewing nonsense. Christians are crazy because you worship a fairy sky daddy. Whatever that even means, okay, right? You're going to get people that just spew talking points from the woke gospel because they're social justice warriors. And then you're going to get folks who truly believe they have a well-reasoned, well-rationed argument for why the Bible isn't real. This is something called deconstruction. Now, Pastor Adam preached about deconstruction last month and did an amazing job. Yes, he did. And I am not going to try and replicate that. But if you missed that or if you are not familiar with it, I want to take 60 seconds and remind you what deconstruction is. Because this is where a lot of your conversations will take place. And it is important you know what deconstruction sounds like. Because this is trendy right now, especially with our younger generation. So you've got to know what to listen for, not only... So you can respond, but also because if you hear your kids or friends of your kids talking like this, then you need to be very careful and make sure you root out any of this thinking before a stronghold takes place. Now, the dictionary will tell you that deconstruction is a challenge to the attempt to establish any ultimate or secure meaning in a text. In theology and apologetics, it is simply attempting to disprove or discredit any facet of the Bible, its authorship, its content, its veracity. The premise goes something like this. If I can prove that any one of the 31,102 verses in the Bible are incorrect, then it stands to prove that it is not the infallible word of God. And if it's not the infallible word of God, then it stands to reason that man could have inserted his opinion at some point. And if man inserted his opinion at some point, it stands to reason I can no longer trust the content or the translation. And if I cannot trust the content or the translation, it is nothing more than an outdated document written by a ruling class to keep me in subservience. And I refuse to bow down or obey that. Family, this is what we've got to guard our hearts from. This is what we've got to guard our children from until they can stand on their own two feet. But that does not mean that we keep them away from those conversations. No, it means we understand the truth so we can speak it and we can preach it and we can teach it. I don't ever want us to not engage with somebody practicing deconstruction or anything else because we're afraid of how we respond. Because the reality is a lot of people practicing deconstruction at one point had a relationship with Jesus. But for whatever reason, 
they fell away and they have used deconstruction as a mechanism to justify that move and justify remaining where they are. But guess what? Jesus never stopped pursuing us. He loved us while we were still sinners. And so we have got to go after them because we have a responsibility to preach the gospel. Not convince them, but to preach the gospel. And when we do, I believe we can make heaven bigger. Listen, this is an important topic right now. 20 years ago, as little as half a generation in biblical terms, many of the truths that are taught in the Bible were considered basic morality. People might not have gone to church. They may not have believed in the Trinity. They may not have believed in Jesus at all. But much of what was taught in the Bible was considered truth. It was accepted as basic morality. But now the world is upside down. And as such, Christians, the Bible, we are no longer the purveyors of truth. Suddenly we have become bigots. We become oppressors. We become brainwashed sheep in the systemic racism of the patriarchy, whatever that even means. I mean, you've got many non-Christians now who will tell you they are the moral ones. We are narrow-minded and arrogant. How dare we define marriage as between a man and a woman? How dare we be so foolish as to assume there are only two genders? In essence, fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, has been replaced by reverent awe of self is the beginning of happiness and tolerance. Now, a believer in Christ knows better. We know there is a hole inside of us that only Jesus can fill. And getting stuck in God's word, as Pastor Olin would say, that is the only way to fill it. But there are many who are outside of our covenant who don't agree with that. And rather than look for truth in God's word, they are going to look for truth anywhere but God's word. That's going to form the basis of their opinions and their beliefs. And then they are going to twist or pervert scripture to support it. Now, we've all been in those debates, right? You say something, you believe some way, you quote the Bible... They respond with example after example, often wildly out of context for how the Bible can't be true, can't be real, and certainly cannot be the infallible word of God. And my response is always simple. If you believe that the Bible is written by man and not God, you clearly have never read Leviticus or Numbers. I mean, seriously, if man wrote the Bible, do you think he would have said something like this? This is Numbers 29. On the 15th day of the seventh month, you shall have a holy convocation. You shall do no ordinary work, and you shall keep a feast to the Lord seven days. And you shall offer a burnt offering, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord, 13 bulls from the herd, two rams, 14 male lambs a year old. They shall be without blemish. And their grain offering of fine flour mixed with oil, Three-tenths of an ephah for each of the 13 bulls, two-tenths for each of the two rams, and a tenth for each of the 14 lambs. Also, one male goat for your sin offering, besides the regular burnt offering, its grain offering, and its drink offering. <laughs> Look, all I'm saying, if Pastor Adam and I had written that, we'd say, I got an idea. 
We'll grill a, we'll grill a ribeye, we'll give the priest a tomahawk, and we'll turn on Sunday ticket. Right? I mean, come on. Look, I jest, but this is a very real threat in America to the souls of millions of people. Eternal lives are hanging in the balance right now. Because the church is not teaching truth with authority right now. We've got an entire generation ready to backslide because they are willing to listen to half-truths and false narratives because we're not giving them the truth. And here is what we should be teaching. It is fine to question the Bible in an effort to better understand God and your relationship with him. It is not okay to doubt the Bible in an effort to give you license to live a life contrary to Scripture. So today I want to talk about three categories of questions you're going to get from non-believers. And I want to talk about how you show the veracity of God's Word each time to refute it. And in doing so, teach your children the truth about God's Word. Here's the first one. Questions on the past. Now, this tends to be the first target. There is no way Moses split the Red Sea. There is no way Jonah was swallowed by the big fish. There is no way a bunch of people started screaming and the walls of Jericho came down. Old Testament replete with miracles. And when people say, I don't believe those miracles, I look at them and I say, do you really believe you've never seen the miraculous in your life. You may not have seen God split the Red Sea, but has he ever split your Red Sea? More to the point, do you realize the Bible has never been proven to be wrong? I want you to think about that for a second. All the critiques, all the research, all the commentary, never once has it been found to be an error. Yes, we have questions about who certain people were. Not every site has been excavated. Some books are lost to history. But never once has it been proven incorrect. Quite the opposite. There have been plenty of times modern science, modern archaeology have said the Bible was wrong only to be disproven. I love how Dr. Vadi Bakum says it. He says, I choose to believe the Bible because it is a reliable collection of historical documents written down by eyewitnesses during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses. They reported supernatural events that took place in fulfillment of specific prophecies and claimed that their writings are divine rather than human in origin. So to answer that question, how do you respond to the attack? You know your Bible. You do your own research so that when people say, there is no way, you say, actually, yes, way. Let me think about Nineveh. Nineveh was the stuff of legends. It wasn't a real city until suddenly in 1847, Austin Henry Lanyard uncovered it, and it was a real city. Sargon the Great, the great conqueror. History would teach you, oh, he is an amalgamation of personas. There's no way there was a guy named Sargon until his palace was unearthed with 200 rooms and 30 courtyards. How about Joseph in Egypt? This is a classic one. They will tell you there is no way this naive Canaanite was the youngest of 12 brothers, thought he was going to be awesome, got a fancy coat, 
got sold into slavery, shipped down to Egypt where he worked for Potiphar, got in trouble with Potiphar, got thrown into jail, <laughs> interpreted a couple of dreams, and suddenly ends up number two behind Pharaoh. Consider this passage, Genesis 41. The seven years of plenty that occurred in the land of Egypt came to an end. And the seven years of famine began to come. As Joseph had said, there was famine in all the lands. But in all of Egypt, there was bread. When all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, go to Joseph. Whatever he says to you, do. So when the famine had spread over all the land, Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain, because the famine was severe over all the earth. Now, if that is just a story, why do so many archaeological facts line up with the Genesis account? Genesis tells us this event happened 4,000 years ago. So is it coincidence that 4,000 years ago, a man-made waterway was cut into the Nile, allowing it to flood more banks than ever and grow a surplus of crops never before seen in the country's history? Now, if you continue to, to read through the Genesis story, you will read that the, the local people, the local rulers, they gave their livestock, they gave their lands, they gave their freedom eventually to a single Pharaoh who was able to consolidate his power because he had all of the crops. He was the Pharaoh who created this man-made waterway that gave him the surplus. Now, does anybody want to know the name of the waterway? It's called Bar Yusuf. It's still in use today. It translates to Joseph's Waterway. And if there are you, those of you that say, well, it was probably renamed in 1928 for some reason. Remember, Joseph is not an Egyptian name. It is a Hebrew name. It means Jehovah shall add. And if you need archaeological evidence, take them to the region of Goshen, which is mentioned in the Bible. The historical archaeological site is something called Avaris. And in it, you will see all of these Egyptian homes. But in the middle, there is an ancient Canaanite-style dwelling created just as though 4,000 years ago, somebody randomly was placed in the middle of Goshen who was originally from Canaan, from Phoenicia. And in the backyard of that house, there are 12 tombs. 11 are the same height. And the 12th has a star sarcophagus on it. And on it is painted a man with a coat of many colors. Now, at this point, like, well, that's pretty good. <laughs> but that happened a long time ago. I need eyewitnesses. Fantastic. Let's take them to the New Testament. Let's take them to Luke's gospel. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Now listen, Luke, that guy, all about the details. 
book of Luke, book of Acts, time and time again, you can verify what he has said. The governors that were in office, the seasons, the events, the ships, the places, all of it can be corroborated outside of the Bible. In fact, what's fascinating is how much of Luke's writings, as well as the other New Testament writings, had been accepted as authentic before the end of the first century A.D. Now, Dr. Frank Turek wrote a book called I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. If you have never read it, it will blow your mind. But he talks about this. He says, the Apostle John had a disciple named Polycarp. Polycarp had a disciple named Irenaeus. Now, between the two of them, they quote 23 of the 27 books that we think of as New Testament canon. Polycarp was born in 69 and died in 155. Irenaeus died in 202. A historian named Eusebius had already authenticated Matthew and Mark's Gospels as early as 120 AD. But that is not what clinches it for me. What clinches the authenticity of Luke's writings is the book of Acts, specifically chapter 7, the martyrdom of Stephen. It's where we meet a man named Stephen who gives an amazing defense of Jesus and then is stoned. It's the first time we meet a guy named Saul of Tarsus who holds the coats for those that are executing Stephen. Now, what fascinates me is while that martyrdom is described in exquisite detail, there is no mention in the book of Acts of the martyrdom of Paul, the martyrdom of Peter, the martyrdom of James, the half-brother of Jesus. There is no verbiage, no passage given to the destruction of the temple in AD 70, which Jesus predicted. Now, if you want to sell people on Christianity, slipping in a few of those items might be a pretty good idea, which begs the question, why isn't it there? And it's simple. Those events hadn't happened yet. The reality is that Acts was written between 55 and 65 AD, which means that there are many who were alive at the time who could have spoke up if they disagreed. Consider the Romans, the Sanhedrin, they control so much of the narrative, but they were unable to refute Luke's writings. Why? Because there were plenty of people who had witnessed it and who could say that did, in fact, happen. It's a lot like 9-11. I imagine almost everybody in this room knows where they were on that day. The smoke, the fear, the ash, Flight 93. Now, if somebody were to write a book tomorrow that told you the Twin Towers never existed, Osama bin Laden was a philanthropist, we could stand up immediately and say, that's not true. That is a lie, and I am willing to risk my reputation and my life because it was too important of an event for me to stand silent. Now, we're about 22 or so years removed from 9-11, almost the exact same length of time between when Luke witnessed those events and wrote his gospel. If his writings would have been false, they would have been discredited then, and they would have passed away to history. But they have maintained the test of time. Now, some of you are probably asking, Sam, this is great, but you probably spent two months researching all this. <laughs> and you're not wrong. <laughs> and you're like, and I have a whopping two examples 
let me encourage you. We're not all Dr. Turk. We're not meant to be Dr. Turk. But when you cannot lean on the Bible's history, I want you to lean on your history. There are going to be plenty of people who are going to throw something at you. What about the flood narrative? What about the Nephilim? What about this? What about that? It is perfectly okay to say, I don't know about that. But let me tell you what Jesus did for me. Listen, the reality is you can debate dates, you can debate translations, but nobody can debate or argue with your story. Bible is true, y'all. Always has been, always will be. Even if not everything has been proven, God will reveal it all in the fullness of time. And speaking of time, let's take the second attack. Questions on prophecy. So if they can't get you on the past, they may come at you on prophecy. And here's the premise. There is no way the 2,500 prophecies in the Bible were actually written or have actually come to pass. Now, what they conveniently skip over is that 2,000 of them have already been fulfilled. 300 of them by the Messiah himself. So when you get the question from an unbeliever who says, I just don't think that actually happened, you don't have to point them to archaeology. You can point them to historical events of which there is rich and resplendent documentation for. Now, there is a historian called Hugh Ross. He, he looked at these prophecies and he pulled out some of the most amazing ones from Scripture. And, and I want to give these to you just so you understand the specificity of some of these prophecies. Sometime before 500 BC, the prophet Daniel proclaimed that Israel's long-awaited Messiah would begin his public ministry 483 years. That's very specific. Remember that. After issuing a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. The decree regarding the restoration of Jerusalem was issued by Persia's king Artaxerxes to the Hebrew priest in 458 BC. 483 years later, the ministry of Jesus begins in Galilee. 700 BC, the prophet Micah says the tiny village of Bethlehem will be the birthplace of the Messiah. 400 years before the crucifixion was invented, David and the prophet Zechariah described the Messiah's death in words that perfectly depicted that mode of execution. But then they said none of his bones would be broken, which was contrary to that mode of execution. Normally, the legs were broken to speed up asphyxiation, but Jesus allowed himself to die so quickly that they had to simply pierce his side to make sure he was, in fact, dead. Now, there are tons of these prophecies, but Ross goes on to say the probability of all them being fulfilled independently is 10 to the 2,000th power. Now, in case you are curious, if you have never seen 2,000 zeros, I want you to look at the screen. Hey, that's just the, that's the problem. That's the equation. That's not the actual calculation, all right? If you calculate it, there is no named number for it. Instead, this is what you get. 
Show them, show them the next count. There it is. Good luck figuring that out with your graphing calculator, okay? <laughs> Listen, it shows you time and time again how accurate the Bible has been, but don't focus on that. Make it real for the non-believer. Say, look around right now, think about the prophecies that haven't happened yet, some 500 in number, and say, hey, look around and tell me the book of Revelation is not coming to life before your very eyes. Sin being labeled as righteousness, idolatry running rampant, love of self on the rise, love of God growing cold. These prophecies are being fulfilled with expediency. It is on display for anybody willing to look. Now, Dr. David Jeremiah wrote a book called The World of the End, and he said, while we don't know what the end of the world, we don't know when it will come, we do know what it will look like. And he was referencing a passage called the Olivet Discourse, which is Jesus talking to his disciples on the Mount of Olives. This is Matthew chapter 24. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus answered them, see that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and they will lead many astray and you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved, and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Now again, you can have people say the Bible isn't real, but look around and tell me if you don't think this is happening. Have you ever seen such division in your life? States, political parties, your own family. Chaos is reigning and abounding. Crime in cities up or down. People preaching a woke heretical gospel on the rise or diminishing. And then churches like us who stand on biblical truth. What do they call us? Granny killers. Homophobes a front for the Republican Party, a cult. Does any of this sound like we are making friends? Listen, you can question the words in Paul's letters. You can argue about the Apocrypha. You can even debate who wrote the book of Hebrews. But you cannot argue that all of the warnings about succumbing to worldly culture in the Old Testament and the New Testament are coming true right now. Evil is no longer hiding. The devil knows his time is short. Now, if you ask, why don't people see it? And you may be even saying, Sam, I don't see what you see. It can't be that bad. Hmm? You'd be surprised. Well, the one that I get most often, Sam, your words are so hurtful, they will cause other people to hurt themselves.
I wanna be very clear, the last thing I want is anybody to hurt themselves, but that does not give me an excuse to not preach the entire gospel. One of love, but also one of truth. Because the reality is the woke gospel may shield you temporarily, but it will condemn you eternally. God's word is absolute truth, will shield you, it will protect you, but the reality is you have gotta be listening for the truth to actually hear it. Back in 2011, my wife and I lived in Singapore, and I wanna take a moment for you all to process this southern accent living in Singapore. So here's the deal. I was in the marketplace before ministry. I used to run international payroll. Get scared. Luckily, none of your dollars were impacted. And so I was, re- I was running retirement and benefits for Asia and Australia. I go into my first meeting. My team is 10 females between 18 and 22. And then I've got two more on the phone in Hong Kong. So I'm going around, it's my first board meeting. Hey, can I get an update from Indonesia? Can I get an update from Thailand? Can I get an update from mainland China? And eventually I get to the phone and I say, hey, Winnie, can I get an update from Hong Kong? Crickets, nothing. I'm thinking she's just intimidated because I'm the new boss in town. So, hey, Winnie, can we get an update from Hong Kong? Nothing. Now I'm thinking, she's on her phone, she's not paying attention, I'm frustrated. So a team lead leans over and she's like, hey, I think I just need to translate. I'm like, go ahead. I'm thinking, this is such a cool cultural moment. She's about to rattle off some Cantonese into the phone. She leans over and in English, <laughs> she says, Winnie, can we get an update from Hong Kong? Winnie starts talking like an auctioneer at a cattle call. I mean... It should be noted five people resigned from my team that week. Just don't judge me. You see, the question we asked was the same, right? But the difference was they were trained to hear the question a certain way. Singapore English is actually called Singlish. It's just, it's a little different. And rather than be ready to respond to the dulcet tones of someone Born and raised on Rocky Top. (laughs) Wish that, no, just no. No, quite the opposite, right? They were trained to hear somebody speaking the cadence and the rhythms of the language that they spoke. Listen, the world is no different, right? Because people's ears right now are not trained to hear the truth. They're trained to hear what they want to hear so that they can validate their values. They can validate their feelings. When I say God is love, I mean God is truth and he is always gonna challenge you and call you higher. When the world hears God is love, they mean that I can live however and love whomever I want. Same words, totally different meaning. But as Christians, Many of us have decided to play along rather than clear out those obstacles. But Jesus is very clear. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Listen to what his brother James says, chapter 5. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death 
and will cover a multitude of sins. Now more than ever, people are twisting God's word. They're reinterpreting scripture. They're omitting the parts they don't like and they're teaching it. And as a result, what once seemed sound doctrine is now suddenly up for debate. So we start teaching prophecy as, you know, it is it's metaphorical. It's not actual. It didn't really happen. Instead of saying, what must the fire have looked like when it fell at Pentecost? People are saying, do you really think without a microphone, Peter could have convinced 3,000 people to come to Jesus? Or what do you think that star looked like over Bethlehem? It's like, you know, I'm looking through these star charts, and I don't, I don't see a celestial event that lines up exactly with that. Probably not true. So doubt can grow. And if that is not checked, if that is not removed, we can start to doubt the Bible's veracity and its authenticity. But then, if left unchecked, you start to doubt the very nature and truth of who God is. And that could pave the way for the greatest and the final attack from the non-believer, particularly from the deconstructionist, questioning your purpose while you're here on earth. I want you to think about how many times God speaks to your identity in Scripture. Psalms 139, 14, you are fearfully and wonderfully made. Jeremiah 1, 5, before you were formed in your mother's womb, I knew you. Jeremiah 29, 11, I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord your God. Plans to prosper you, plans to give you hope and a future. Esther 4, 14, but who knows that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. And especially this from John 14. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do and greater works than these will he do because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Now those are crystal clear truths from the Bible. God loves you. He's got a plan for you. He is going to be with you every step of the way. But only if your questions are, Jesus, how can you work through me? Father God, what is your will for my life? Father, what great act would you have me do even if the world says it's not great? Because if your questions are, how do we even know Esther existed? Or you really think Jeremiah wrote the book of Lamentations? We have totally missed the point. If you start from the position that the Bible is the inerrant, infallible word of God, then all the research you do is simply going to push you closer to God and by extension, your purpose while you're here on earth. But if you start with the position that there is no way the Bible can be accurate unless you prove it to me via non-biblical sources, then you are never going to connect yourself to the source of truth, the source of power, and ultimately the source of purpose for your life. You may spend your life on good plans, but you're never going to spend them on God plans. You may have a good identity as the world sees it, but you will never see the identity, you'll never realize the identity that God has for you. And that is the truth that you are the son or daughter of a king. And you are capable of more than you could possibly ask, think, or imagine. 
So when you are confronted by a non-believer who says, I don't think God is real. I don't think the Bible is real. I don't think you have a purpose. I want you to stand firm on this truth. The Bible's history of the past was true. The prophecies written in it are coming true. So you know that the purpose God has for you is true. I want to say that again because I don't want you to miss that. Every time you are having a discussion with somebody who doesn't believe, when they've got questions, this is what you stand firm on. This is your back to basics moment. The Bible's history of the past was true. The prophecies written in it are coming true. So you know that the purpose God has for you is true. Would you stand on your feet with me? Now, normally, I begin a closing with some austere wisdom from somebody like Tozer or Spurgeon. Today, I'm going to quote Denzel Washington. And St. Denzel said, I would rather be condemned by men for standing with God than be condemned by God for standing with men. And that's the question. When you get into the fiery furnace, which truth are you going to stand on? Are you going to be standing with the God of Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, the one who has always been there, who is never changing the immutable, unchangeable ancient of days? Or are you going to stand with the truths that change with the shifting sands of the woke, fickle mob of worldly culture? Listen. God wants your questions. He can handle your questions. If you stand on his word, he will always protect you and call you higher. But if you aren't, if you stand on any other truth, then it is a convenient excuse to live a life that is contrary to the gospel. And if you choose that, or if you allow your friends and family to choose that, Consider this warning from the tail end of the Bible, the last chapter of Revelation. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. Listen, if you're in here today, and you've never had a relationship with Jesus, or maybe you did, but through deconstruction or something else, you have fallen away. Now is the moment. And you're saying, I've got questions. We've all got questions. The reality is you're never gonna get the answer to every question this side of eternity, but that is where faith comes in. Faith that God is on the throne and he is with us and he has shown us how to live, how to walk, how to honor him. So with every head bowed, if every eye closed, if you say, that's me, I want to come home. I want Jesus in my heart. I want his truth to be my foundation. I want Jesus as Lord and Savior of my life. 
Would you raise your hand? I see that hand. 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 We're going to pray this prayer. I'm going to say it. Church, would you repeat after me? Would you say, Dear Jesus, thank you so much for loving us, for showing us the truth. Jesus, I make you Lord and Savior of my life. Help me to go in paths of service and love all my days. In Jesus' name, amen.